copy of God's Word, could you turn to Luke chapter 13 this evening, the Gospel of Luke, and the 13th chapter, please. It's good singing this evening, and good themes to sing. If there is anyone here that secretly has some skill with an instrument, and uh, you resist coming and joining in our services, let me encourage you to think otherwise. I like to hear the blending of the instruments as we worship together, and I'm very thankful to see those that, that uh, make the effort, bring their instruments, and join in this way, and if there's someone else, anyone else that has that gift, please don't hesitate to make use of it to, well to my edification, if not yours, uh, being selfish. I enjoy it. I'm very thankful for it. And to sing with all your might and have the accompaniment help us in that is a wonderful gift. We thank the Lord for it. But as we open the Word of God tonight, we're in Luke chapter 13. And closing this chapter, we come to the final few verses, so we're going to read those verses that we're looking at this evening with the Lord's help, verse 31 through to the end. Luke chapter 13, verse 31, let us hear the word of the Lord. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come, when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord." Amen. May the Lord write His Word in our hearts and give us humility to submit to it. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again and look to the Lord for a word from Him. We need to hear from Him. Lord, that's always the need. We are in need of the Word of God. We are men and women and young people in darkness without the Word of God. Thy Word is so precious. We pray that our value of it will increase all through our days so that it would be more precious to us than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. May we Receive the engrafted word with meekness tonight, 
that is able to save our souls. May the Lord Jesus stand and send forth his Spirit into hearts to rightly receive this word. Save those that are not saved. Build up thy people. Hear and answer prayer and be with us in this little time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the duties of every Christian is to stand before a perishing world and issue to them the gospel, to constantly looking for opportunities to put the truth before men. We are to be salt and light. We're called upon to reflect the mind of the Lord by communicating His Word as opportunity arises. And I think I've used the illustration before. Many, many years ago, probably, I was very new as a Christian. I was reading a book on evangelism and the verses that you need to memorize and use when you're trying to address different types of people and beliefs. And I had a little quote in the bottom that said something about needing to be like a mosquito. A mosquito doesn't wait for an invitation, doesn't wait for you to invite it to come along and, and dine on your arm or wherever, but it just comes. It looks for the opportunity. It looks for the opportunity and goes in and seizes upon it. And evangelism ought to be a little like that, just looking for the opportunity, a way in which we might bring the truth to those that are before us in the providence of God. The opening verses of this chapter put before us a call to repent. Our Lord Jesus, with heavy and direct language, calls men to repent, lays it upon them as the, of the utmost importance. Don't be worried about what's going on. Stop being sidetracked by secondary and even lesser things. Get your eye upon this reality. You must repent. For except you repent, you will perish. And last week, we saw another invitation, a call to enter in from verse 24 and following, where he presents what we entitle the gate of conversion, and he is beckoning, he is exhorting, he is calling upon man, press in. Press in to the gate. And we come tonight to the remaining verses, and again, we see the heart of the preacher that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't remember who said it, but when they said that God had one son, then he made him a preacher. And in that sense, it's true, and it becomes very clear here the constant effort of the Lord Jesus to apply truth, direct truth to the hearts and souls of men and women. He never trifles. He never wastes time. He never misses an opportunity. He is constantly in the endeavor of bringing truth to the hearts of men. And if we could exemplify him at least in that, endeavoring to bring truth and as we shall see tonight, to bring it in the way that He brings it. We will, I think, do much good as believers in the time we have here upon the earth. The verses we are considering tonight have, have many complex matters that I will not get into. There are complexities about questions rising, what does this mean for 
Israel and Jerusalem. There are other questions that arise concerning what does, how does this relate in the context of the, of the doctrine of election? How do you tie these things in? And certainly some of those questions may arise. I don't think they're difficult necessarily to deal with. But I don't want us to miss, I don't want us to get bogged down in details about the future of Israel or matters concerning election and miss the thrust of the message. So my responsibility tonight is to make sure as you leave, you're leaving with an understanding of the heart of Christ in this passage, the message that He puts before men. And if you're here without a saving knowledge of Christ, that you are not conscious of the fact that your sins are all forgiven, every last one of them, through the merit of Jesus Christ alone. If your confidence is in something other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His imputed righteousness, then tonight it is upon you to respond to that message where He calls and He beckons and He invites you to believe in Him. That salvation will be... Uh, received by you by faith alone, not by your mere attendance in a place like this or your allegiance to certain aspects that may be considered, considered conservative or even biblical. You need to be saved. Your heart needs to be regenerated. There needs to be new life and a new principle of life that is in you that only God can give, and you come to Him for it. So tonight we're looking at these verses under the title, Christ's Loving Warning to Sinners, His Loving Warning to Sinners. And like last time, just two main headings here where we first deal with Herod and the Pharisees. Herod and the Pharisees. Look at verse 31. The same day, so we're, again, the theme, the heartbeat of Christ as He has called men to strive to enter in at the straight gate with that kind of theme on his heart, you can see it continuing on throughout the day. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. There is first here a malicious report. That report is brought by the Pharisees on behalf, it appears, of Herod. Now, Herod was the regional ruler of Galilee, and the Lord Jesus is still in Galilee. Now, he's not going to be long there. He's going to start making his way into the regions of Judea and heading towards Jerusalem. We've dealt with that in recent times. But he's in the area of Galilee, Herod's jurisdiction, and the Pharisees come to him saying, Get thee out. Get out of here. Get out of Galilee. Get out of this region. Depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. I don't know how this all came about. It's not like the Pharisees and Herod were the best of friends, or at least that there was great respect between the Pharisees and Herod. They basically put up with one another. But you find this. You find how the Lord Jesus experiences this, my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? And you're going to find this, Luke's going to point this out later with regard to Herod and Pilate. 
that they both were at enmity with one another until they're, uh, they're confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, and through that interaction and the problem of the Messiah, they end up becoming friends. And so people unite, at least for a time, in their common rejection of the Son of God. My enemy's enemy is my friend. Always be careful, always be careful about someone who comes with information and tries to persuade you in a certain matter from the, from the angle that they don't like something that you don't like. And it may not always have been the way that they have done it. Their, their, goal, their goal is to align themselves with you for the purpose of this attack upon a common enemy. But they're not necessarily your friend. They're not meaningfully a friend. And, and as Christians, we're going to see this. I think there are elements in which we may already see it, where parties that have united hatred for something, though they may not like one another, their hatred for this other group or person is so intense that they will unite together to, to attack them. And there may come the day, if God doesn't work in revival and turning the tide, there may come a day that Christians themselves in the West are those individuals. I think we see it. I, I do. I mean, I, I, there's an element of it. It's not overt, but, and, and I don't want to get sidetracked tonight, but it always surprises me when left liberal thinking people are fighting for the defense of Muslims and have this common hatred toward Christianity, and yet should the Muslims actually gain power and influence, they would be the first to be gone, at least some of them. It's like, what are you doing? But, you know, such as their hatred for those who stand for the Word of God and Christians, they, they're going to unite together for a season. Use one another to achieve their ends, which is the eradication of the church and the putting down of the Word of God. So that's what is happening here with the Pharisees and Herod. They, they don't like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have it in other passages. I'll just mention a couple in Mark chapter 3. So this, this is beginning early in the ministry of Christ. Mark 3 verse 6, the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They're aligning with those that are followers of Herod, those that, that stand with Herod, aligning with them to destroy this common enemy. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Again, they're working together for the same purpose. And like I say, later we're going to find Pilate and Herod reconciled due to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same idea here. But here's, here's the goal. Get thee out, depart hence. Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. I don't know Herod's motive, nor do I even know the Pharisees' particular motive in this instance. But isn't it remarkable that here is one that is, in the language of, of Acts, he went about doing good. That, that's all he's doing. He's going about doing good. That's a summary of his work. He's going about doing good, and they want him gone. How odd are men in their fallen lunacy. So they bring this report, and they say, Herod will kill thee. I don't know what Herod was planning. I'm not even sure what he said. 
I, I don't know if they're carrying a true report here. It would seem that it is true based on the response of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he does not respond like it was a falsehood or a lie or an exaggeration. So what's the motive behind Herod? Why does he want to kill the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe it's because his presence there is a constant reminder of how he had treated John, and John was loved by the common people, and while the Lord Jesus carries on his ministry, it's a constant reminder of the injustice of Herod against John. I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but the pressure is mounting, and Herod feels it, and he does not appreciate the ongoing presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in Galilee. So there is this language, he will kill thee. Of course, we'll come to Luke chapter 23 when Jesus Christ is right there in front of Herod, and in his presence, he is engaging with him, and Christ doesn't speak to him at all, and he doesn't endeavor to kill him, he just sends him back to, to Pilate. So there's a malicious report. Lord Jesus is despised and rejected of men. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. There are people in Greenville, there are people in every community that want Christ out. There are people in Greenville that think Greenville would be better without all the churches, without all the Christians, without any Christian ministry. They'd just get it all out. Remove it. We'd be better without it. There's also here a messianic response. Verse 32. He said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. He calls him fox, and of course it's, <laughs> it's not very uh, warm, that kind of language, is it, in one sense? You know, calling him names like this, but he is, he is reading his, his intent. He's, he's describing his character in his subtle ways to try and rid the region of the presence of the Son of God. John Calvin says, I do not think that the term fox is intended to refer generally to the cunning of his whole life, but rather to the insidious methods by which he labored to undermine the doctrine of the gospel when he did not venture to attack it openly. So he's using cunning ways, subtle, fox-like ways, underhanded ways to undermine the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry of the gospel to sinners. And you'll see here some interesting language when the Lord Jesus, after he addresses him as a fox, when, and I, I just should, should remark there, um, the Lord Jesus didn't use this kind of language regularly. I mean, he didn't assign names to people on a regular occurrence. So, whenever, if you're in the habit of assigning names, uh, unpleasant names to people, be very careful, very careful. Make sure they have earned the title and the name, and don't just start throwing around names against people. It seems uh, that we, we like to do that. We don't want to be doing that. You children, when you call your brothers and sisters names, don't do that. It's not, it's not very kind. And... Even if you think they're acting like Herod, don't, don't go down that path. I'm sure they're not as bad as Herod was. So, behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. What does he mean? There are different ideas here. So, let me just summarize the sense of it here. But before I do that, 
the language of I cast out devils and do cures is again, it's, it's messianic. This is his work. He summarizes the fact that he's going about healing people as a, as a shorthand way of indicating I'm fulfilling the messianic intention. That's what I'm doing. Now, I want you to, to see that before I proceed, because here is one who has rejected the truth. He had one of the best preachers that have ever lived standing before him. And John the Baptist did not hold back at all standing before Herod. He, he brought him the truth. He was faithful, and faithful literally unto death. And he brings him the word. I don't know how often it tells us in the Gospels that he heard him gladly, and he had a certain appreciation, or even we might say interest in listening to John, even though John at times was attacking the sinfulness of his life. But you know the story. He ends up beheading John. And in one sense, I was thinking about this, because I've often said it, and I think I've said it from this pulpit too, that when, when Herod gave the order for the beheading of John, it was, it was the silencing of God from his life. This evil, wicked Edomite has one of the best preachers that has ever lived, a prophet of God standing before him, bringing to him the truth. And he's preaching with all of his heart. And Herod's, Herod's response to respond to Herodias and give the command for his beheading was the silencing of God in his life. It was saying, I don't want God's voice in my life. And so when we come eventually to Luke chapter 23 and Jesus is before Herod, he is absolutely silent. He does not utter a word. My reading of that is simply, Herod's fate was sealed. God had nothing else to say to him. His path into the judgment of God's eternal wrath was already settled, for he had silenced God from his life, as it were. But in reading these words, I see the final, the final call. A word of mercy to Herod. You tell him, I cast out devils and I do cures. You tell him, I am about messianic business. You tell him, I am still fulfilling the prophecy. I am still doing what I have been sent to do. Now, all of his miracles, in part, was causing the chaos and the political tension that Herod, no doubt, was feeling as he occupied authority in the region of Galilee. So there was no denying it. Every, every day he woke up, there were fresh reminders that Jesus Christ is healing people and doing miracles, and, and, we, and we know that. We know, in fact, just coming to mind, I wasn't thinking of it in my preparation, but hoping I'm not 
misremembering here. Yes, go back to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. So again, we're given this broad brush statement concerning the ministry of Christ, going through every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And then we're told about the women, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. So Herod's right-hand man, his wife, Joanna, had some kind of ailment, some kind of problem that could not be healed by ordinary efforts and means, and gets deliverance from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you you have to imagine that the interaction between Herod and his steward, some point Herod says, how's Joanna? And he says, well, you'll never believe it. Jesus, whom John preached, has healed her. Everywhere Herod turned, there were, there were messages of mercy to him. Reminders of the reason why Christ was there and what he was capable of doing. And again, he, he, he reminds, I'm still about this, curing. Send him a reminder, I'm still doing what I did for his steward's wife. I'm still doing it. I see this as, as mercy. The final reaching out of mercy towards a wretched man. Calvin, when he reads verse 32, today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected, he suggests the third day as a reference to his death in a short space of time. So today and tomorrow and the third is, is a kind of abbreviated way of saying in the very near future I shall be perfected, that my in other words, my work will be done. I don't, I don't know if that's really what's going on here. There's similar language used in the very next verse. I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. So you have this idea of today, tomorrow, and what comes after, the next following day. And, and it may be, it, it may be that this actually is with reference to his ministry in Galilee. Because he is coming up to it. I was checking, I was trying to figure out the alignment of everything. And we are coming close to where we lead into, where Matthew picks up in Matthew 19 verse 1, where he leaves Galilee and he starts entering into the area of Judea. So we're, we're leading into that. And maybe there is a, a literal sense in which he is saying that I'm here today, I'll be here tomorrow, the third day I'll be complete, I'll be finished in my work in Galilee. And then he began his journey to Judea. That, that may be what is in view as well. So I, I can't say dogmatically, but that, that could be what is in mind. And so the, the sense is my messianic work in Galilee is almost over. 
I'm still doing what I began doing, curing, casting out devils, delivering souls, showing mercy to men. Today and tomorrow, the third day, I'll be finished. And I'll make my way then to Jerusalem. That's where he's going. Luke has already told us that. But he's going to enter into the region of Judea and begin this journey more directly toward Jerusalem in coming days. That may be what is in mind. But whatever, whatever it points to, whatever it's indicating here, either way, it is showing that the work is coming near an end, that his work is coming to completion. And that's a glorious truth that plays on what we consider this morning. Here's the one who sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's the one we're being told now is, is continuing his work. And there's constant pressure to give up. So if it is in the sense that today, tomorrow, and then the third day I leave Galilee, it's so close. He might have considered, well, I was planning to go in a few days anyway. I might as well go now. If Herod's saying he's going to kill me, I might as well go now. Under threat of his life, he stays to finish the work. Because this is what Jesus will do. He will finish the work even though ultimately it will cost him his life. Beloved, we learn the resolution of our Lord Jesus Christ here, don't we? We see the courage of his humanity. We see the central focus of his life and heart. He cannot be sidetracked. He will not enter into frivolities and trifling things. He will not be deterred no matter what threat is put before him. He cannot be bought. He cannot be threatened. He cannot be sidetracked. He is setting his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem and finish the work that was given to him. If he had, if he had slipped up even once, we all are damned. So he cannot be dissuaded he is faithful to finish his work. And we, we should take that to heart. We should wake up each morning and say, Lord, make me faithful in my work. Keep me faithful in my work. The things that came against Christ may not be precisely what will come against you. You're not being faced every day with a threat, perhaps, that your, your life will end if you don't take another direction. But there are other things you may suffer, or there may be other threats. If you don't change, if you do not change your ways, you may lose your job. We're still somewhat protected in South Carolina in respect of those kind of things to some degree. But there are many, many Christians counting the cost. Here in these shores, in this very nation, counting the cost to be faithful to Christ. We don't know when it may come to us. But let us go to passages like this, be reminded of the faithfulness of Christ, and in the language of 1 John 2, 6, walk even so as He walked. There is then also a momentous remark. Verse 33, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem simple sense of I must walk today, tomorrow, and the day following is I must keep going. I must keep going. He indicates that he will complete what he intends to do with no regard to Herod or the Pharisees. 
And this, again, the Pharisees seeing and hearing this, this is, this is the mercy of the Lord. He is mercifully presenting before them again the love of his heart, the, the passion of his soul for men. It cannot be, it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. I'm going to keep going. Of course, as we've considered already, he is going to Jerusalem. It cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Now, just stop there. What is he saying? Is he saying every prophet of God that perishes, perishes in Jerusalem? Because if he's saying that, that's not true. John didn't perish in Jerusalem. Other prophets were killed outside of Jerusalem in the past. So what is he saying? Some have read this with the language like, it seldom happens that someone perishes, a prophet perishes outside Jerusalem. That is that's certainly taking liberties with the language. I think if we move into verse 34, it helps us a little. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. I think that's the key. It's like two qualifications. A prophet that is sent to Jerusalem and a prophet who is killed in the labor is killed in Jerusalem. There may be other prophets, but they weren't directly sent to Jerusalem. And they may have died in their labors, but they weren't sent to Jerusalem. That wasn't their call. It would appear the Lord Jesus then is is clearing up this where when a prophet is sent particularly to go to Jerusalem and his end is death, that's what Jerusalem has produced time and time again. She kills. When she kills... There's those sent unto her by God. Prophets may be sent to Samaria, may be sent to other regions. Sometimes they are killed, but Jerusalem has this track record now of killing the prophets that are sent unto her specifically. Stephen pointed this out. Acts 7, verse 52, in his sermon before his own martyrdom. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which, are showed be, that which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. So he's emphasizing the same point. And there are other passages that bring this out as well. This, this track record of killing your prophets. And Jerusalem had it more than, than most. So the language of the verses we've looked at are directed to Herod and the Pharisees, and if they're paying attention, there, there, is, an, there, is, there is mercy in some of this wor- these words that they need to grasp and hold on to. That brings us then to see Jerusalem and the Jews. Jerusalem and the Jews. Verse 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not... Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, 
And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The language of verse 34 is similar to what we find in Matthew 23. Only in Matthew 23, it is, it is in Judea, it's looking over Jerusalem, that he says these words. So how do you pair that together? Either, either he says the same thing on multiple occasions, which we know he has done and, and did, or Luke is taking and drawing from the record of Matthew and placing it here in the context. Luke has mismatched areas of his gospel at other times, so that, that may be the case, where, where there's a thematic kind of thing going on. He places certain things into the story to help bolster the image that he's conveying about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. So that may be the case. But I think more than likely, it is a repetition. That he states it here, and he's going to state something similar when he actually looks over Jerusalem and weeps over the city. A couple of things to see here. There is first an image of his love. An image of his love. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. See the imagery? How often would I have gathered thy children together? How often would I have taken all of you in as a hen doth gather her brood? The imagery here is one of, of remarkable love. And I want you to see it in the sense of what he has been about. Now, you read through the Gospels, we don't see him much in Jerusalem. Not much. John's Gospel certainly gives us references to his time in Jerusalem. But we're not given the entire record of all that he did and everywhere he went. And there, it may be, certainly here, the language would show that he regularly went to Jerusalem. And every time he was in Jerusalem, at the very least, he made these appeals to them, calling them together making cries to invite them to repentance and faith, as it were. So he depicts himself. He creates this image of a hen gathering her brood. The little chicks are there in, dangerous, in a place of danger. And there's some enemies. She, she senses danger. She, she knows that there's danger com coming and looming. And that's the sense of, of what's looming in verse 35. Your house being left to you desolate. There's something looming. And so the hen is aware of this. She senses it, and she's, she's calling to the, to the little chicks. She's, she's calling them to come in, gather in, so that she might protect them. And this imagery is what Christ puts in her mind as, as we are to think about His relationship to Jerusalem and His ministry to that city. As I thought about this, as I, as I tried to enter into the heart of it, even reading it, I was, my heart was moved by the language, thinking about it, because there is here in this passage a reflection of the heart of Jesus Christ that I think many don't see, and certainly preachers can often fail to think upon or, or meditate upon. The job of the prophet 
the job of the preacher is not solely to communicate truth. Now that's his primary duty. Communicate the message of God. Communicate the truth. What God has given to you, get up there, get out there and proclaim it. But that is not the image that we have here of the Lord Jesus Christ merely going to Jerusalem and proclaiming truth. The imagery he puts before us is like a mother hen calling, calling to those in danger. He is communicating truth with heart, with love, with passion and pathos. His whole being is, is overcome with a sense of the needs of these people, the impending doom of their future. Now, you immediately may start thinking about, well, you're saying that, and he's showing love to them, and he's calling out to them in love. But since he is God, does he not know who the elect are? Is he not conscious of what's going to happen here? Is he not aware to some degree of of their rejection? Has he not prophetically said what's going to happen here will be like Isaiah experienced being sent to a people who, who will not hear and not respond? I think we've We've been going over it in Hebrews, and it's going to come up more and more as we proceed. But don't, don't diminish or subtract from the real humanity of Jesus Christ. The God-man, the prophet in flesh, calling to Jerusalem, does so with all of the heart that any man has ever reflected towards men. It's like a mother. That's, that's the scene. The imagery of a caring hen for her brood, calling them, calling them away from danger. There is a natural love. And he is saying that is what he has done. His ministry can be described in this image. Like a hen gathering her brood. I call to you, Jerusalem. So those of you that are preachers, and I say that whether you're teaching Sunday school or whatever other context where you deliver the Word of God, you are not simply called to communicate the Word. You need a heart like Christ. You need to love those before whom you stand even when you can see the ugliness of their character, when you're aware of some of the ugliness and hatred of their behavior, how much more was Christ aware of the ugliness of the sins of Jerusalem, of their blasphemy, of their animosity, of their hatred, of the raising up of their traditions above the Word of God? 
And yet he loves them. His, his heart is bleeding, calling out to them. How often would I have gathered you? I'm so convicted reading this. Preachers spend so much time at times to get up and be precise and be faithful in the letter delivered. Often to the neglect of the heart that's communicating it. church is languishing in part, at least we might say the church that ought to know better, the remnant, the faithful reflection of those who love the truth, who who love the Word of God, who truly are regenerate and, and know the Lord, yet they are languishing sitting under preaching and their communities are languishing. By the fact that the truth is so often communicated without any love. This is the free offer exemplified, if ever it was. He did, he did. He stood in Jerusalem. You have it in John 7 as one example. And he stood up on that last day of the feast and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Just these people who've been there for days now. He lifts up this, this, like a final cry to the multitudes. Do any of you thirst? There's no one thirst. If you thirst, come. Come and drink. We are not to harbor thoughts about election in such a way that it curbs us from a sincere and passionate invitation to sinners to repent and believe the gospel. So we have an image of his love. Oh, those three words at the end of verse 34, ye would not. Ye would not. This is man's responsibility right here. He is responsible. We've already seen that. Strive to enter. Strive to enter. Now you have it reflected in this way. I was in Jerusalem constantly calling people to enter. You would not. I. May there be no one here that that can be written over your life. You've sat in church and you've heard sermon after sermon 
and ye would not. That's not what's going to be written over your headstone. But that might be what the Lord would write over it. Born in 1900 and whatever. Died in whatever year. Ye would not. He would not. She would not. Christ, through the preaching of his word, he holds out his arms to you. And on that day, if you're not found in heaven, it will be because you would not. That we have an image of his love and a warning of his judgment. Verse 35, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come, and you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Your house, most believe it's referring to the temple, and there may be an indication here of his detachment from it at this stage. Your house, not my father's house, not my house, your house. I'm not sure if that's what's intended, but it could be. When you read through John's Gospel, you'll, you'll see how he refers to the Passover as the Jews' Passover. Now you will know, reading Exodus 12, that it was called the Lord's Passover. It was always called the Lord's Passover, the Lord's Passover. But when you come and to John's Gospel and he's writing about the Passover, because he knows he came on to his own and his own received him not, knowing that that is, that is the Lord's Passover. And having rejected the Lord's Passover, whatever they're doing now annually, it's, it's your Passover. It's the Jews' Passover. So he warns of what's to come. Your house is left unto you desolate. The idea of desolate is wilderness. It's usually translated that way. It's a wilderness. And he's going to deal with it in Luke 21. Time's almost gone, but if you flip over to Luke 21, you'll see what he's referring to. Luke 21, verse 20. When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them are with child unto them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
That happened. His word is sure. AD 70, Roman armies came in, flattened Jerusalem. And in many ways, they've never recovered. Israel's never recovered. But there's coming another day. He shall not see me until the time when he shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now this is said when he enters into Jerusalem, isn't it? They quote Psalm 118, verse 26, I think it is. And they say that when the children cry out these very words. And perhaps that's what's being looked forward to. The vast majority of them would be in Jerusalem for that occasion. But it's most likely looking forward to another day. A day when they will look on him whom they have pierced. You'll see the arrival of the Son of God in power to complete, tie up the loose ends of his judgment upon the world. These are sobering words, men and women. These are sobering words. But they are so loving that's, that's what I want you to get away. Here is the Lord Jesus in His love for sinners. He is calling them. Yes, at times the call is language of warning. It's here's where you're going. Stop, stop going down this path. And other times it's just expressions of His love, calling them, inviting them. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Language like this, invitation. So if you are not saved, it is through no fault but your own. You have been bidden, and you're being bidden again tonight to come to Christ. And if you don't, and you perish, it's because you would not. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't confess my sin and seek Christ for His mercy. I wouldn't do it. That's the reason why. Christ calls you to repent and believe the gospel, to surrender your allegiance to self or any substitute, to take up your cross daily and follow Him. Am I speaking to someone, maybe even aged, and you've sat in church for decades, but still you have not come? Or maybe one younger, thinking that you can continue down this path indefinitely until you decide the right time. Well, there is a time that came when Herod heard no more words from Christ. Oh, the, the awfulness of the silence of God. So if you're hearing Him, if you're hearing Him, respond. Respond tonight. May God help you. Let's bow together in prayer.
if you're struggling with assurance, struggling with where you are before God and you need counsel and help, please speak to me or some other mature believer that you have confidence in. Get the matter of your uncertainty resolved. Seek the Lord while He may be found and call upon Him while He is near. Lord, we pray, bless Thy Word. We pray against the fowls of the air that seek to steal away the seed of the Word. I pray that every Christian here would have a heart like Christ. Help us to see the perishing multitudes and to love them. We ask, O oh God, that should there be one here still outside thy mercy, may they strive to enter in. May they press in tonight. May it please thee to save their souls. Oh, do thy saving work in this place. Let none perish, we beg of thee. How oft would we have gathered thee? Oh, how the preacher, the faithful preacher, should be able to say the same. How oft but I have gathered thee, and you would not. Please, O oh God, give ears to hear in this place. Make this a place where soul after soul is born again. So bless the food downstairs for those that remain behind. Encourage each saint as they fellowship one with another before they go home. And strengthen thy church as we Step into this week and press forward by thy power. May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Mm-hmm.